You're listening to New Voices, a production of the Extending New Narratives in the History of Philosophy Project. This podcast is sponsored by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada and partner institutions. I'm Olivia Branscombe. And I'm Haley Brennan. In this episode, I speak with Anastasia Pugliese, Assistant Professor of Philosophy at the Federal University of Rio de Janeiro. We talk about the life, work, and reception of the 19th century Brazilian philosopher, Nicia Floresta. Nastasia and I talk about Nicia's philosophy of education, her Enlightenment critique of slavery and colonialism, and the common misconception that Nicia translated the work of Mary Wollstonecraft. Though only one of Nicia's essays has been translated into English, listeners can find some of her writings in French and Italian, and should keep an eye out for Nastasia's forthcoming introduction to Nicia with Cambridge University Press. Hi, Nastasia. It's a pleasure to have you as a guest today on our podcast, and I'd like to start just by asking you to describe your main philosophical interests and what you've been working on lately. Hi, Olivia. Thank you for having me here. It was a pleasure to receive this invitation, so it's really nice to be here now talking to you and the listeners of the podcast. So my research sort of starts with 17th century rationalism and the work of canonical authors, And I think that Spinoza's ethics is a philosophical masterpiece. And I have spent some time trying to figure out theoretical and practical consequences of his substance monism, looking at his concept of individual, his theory of imagination. And I do think that we cannot reason well without a good aid of imagination. So I also wonder what Descartes had to say about substance, reason, and imagination to sort of figure out what is a human being for him. So during this research that I started while I was a teaching assistant during my um, graduate studies at the University of Georgia, I came to learn about the 17th century reception of Spinoza in England by the Cambridge Platonists and Anne Conway, and I was completely hooked. I mean, because of Anne Conway's critique of Spinoza and Descartes on her principles, I started to study her metaphysics and a whole world opened to me like that of the retrieval of the works of women philosophers. So it was because of Conway and her, like what I like to call her radical view of transmutation, I started to allow myself to work on women philosophers that I didn't previously know about. And then I haven't learned at the university because I kind of had a sense that I would find other counterintuitive and sort of Mm. liberating theories. So... And then one day, and this is like the very contingent aspect of research, a colleague of mine and I were talking about the possibility of doing this retrieval work um, with Brazilian women philosophers. And we were trying to figure out the difficulties that we would find. So she told me about about Nisia Floresta, and we actually ended up writing a chapter together, (laughs) mapping her central philosophical concepts. But really what got me into this figure, like I started getting very much interested and focused all my attention on her works was when I found out that her first book, Floresta's first book, was the translation of a radical feminist pamphlet from 18th century Britain by the anonymous Sophia, who was actually influenced by the writings of François Poulain de la Barre, a Cartesian. So I kind of figured out that it I could be a good reader of Floresta due to my training in early modern rationalism. So that's it. Now I'm working on the Cartesian roots of Brazilian first feminist work. That's so wonderful to hear. Um, it's I'm excited to talk to you more also about Anne Conway. I know that's not the topic of this podcast episode, but 
My research is focused on Anne Conway and Margaret Cavendish, and I love the way that you describe the kind of counterintuitive and liberating proposals that Conway offers. I think that's one of the most fun things about reading philosophers who haven't been sort of read over and over and over again as part of our historical philosophical canon. But anyway, that's just to say, I hope we can talk about Conway someday soon, but setting that to one side, um, it would be great, I think, if you could tell me and the listeners also a little bit more about Nicia Floresta, both who she is or was, I guess, historically, so her context, and then also as a philosopher. So could we start by talking a little bit just about her life, her context, and then maybe hear something about her main philosophical views. Who was Floresta? <laughs> when was she born? She was born in 1810 when Brazil was still a colony of the Kingdom of Portugal. And um, she passed away in 1885, four years before the country became a republic. And also like four years before the abolition of the institution of slavery here. So in this sense, she's like a post-colonial thinker. Um, not in the decolonial sense, whatever that means exactly, but in a temporal sense. Like she wrote and lived immediately after Brazil ceased to be a colony of Portugal and was constructing itself as an independent nation. So she like witnessed historical events that shaped modernity, both in the new world and the old world, like the construction of nation states, um, the Italy of the Risorgimento, uh, she witnessed the optimism that happened in, in Europe due to industrialization and the scientific revolution. So in her writings, and she wrote like more than 12 books and various essays on the press, she's comparing the social developments of all nations, <laughs> European nations, mm. American nations from North and South, documenting habits, virtues, and vices, like offering a cultural critique of modernity. And it's interesting because, like, she lived 30 years of her life in Europe, in France. So she participated in the cultural life of the Salons. She had a, like, welcoming and fertile intellectual circle. She was friends with Auguste Comte, Victor Hugo, Alexander Dumas, right? And scholars call her, like, the most learned woman of Brazil in her time. And um, it's also interesting because she received recognition when she was alive. She could publish everything that came out of her pen. And her books have been translated to French, to Italian during the 19th century. And we find records that one essay that she wrote on moral education, the title is in Italian and I will not be able to pronounce it really well. So Concilia Mia Filia. Like it had been indicated by a local bishop for adoption in Italian Catholic schools to be part of the curriculum. So wow, this, is, wow. this is pretty amazing. <laughs> yeah, that's some serious like acceptance, social acceptance of her as a thinker. Right. And it's, it's impressive how we kind of don't know what to do with her <laughs> when we retell the history of philosophy. Um, Absolutely. Anyway, there is a couple of things that I can say more about her if, if, if you think it's appropriate. Um, yes. Um, well, I guess first I would like to just jump in and say that it's such a theme that I've noticed in these conversations for this podcast that women philosophers or other marginalized philosophers working in different historical periods are actually very much part of the conversation of their time. But I just think it's it's important to point that out because it's really a common theme that, you know, it's not necessarily that the time that these people were writing in 
was so repressive or something like that, that they were just unable to produce work or publish or get their ideas out there. It's really something that happened in the intervening years or something that's at work today that has made it the case that we don't really know anything about them now in our current historical context. So I would love to hear a bit more about Floresta and like sort of specifically her like cultural critique. Um, Maybe we could talk a bit more about that or maybe some specifics of other views that she maintained. Yes. So I think that it's very important to to, uh, point out that these figures found ways to produce and to think and to you know publish and mm-hmm. to be themselves and and write their their own thoughts and contribute to to the public sphere even even if the law was against them right yeah. um, so this makes them very special figures and it's also say things about history like how how history is important for for the present because Otherwise, we just get like a, a, an incomplete narrative of, of our past mm-hmm. and and, uh, and of ourselves. So it's it's always important to come back and kind of see uh, the dissonant voices that had been going on and that, that were there, part of the, the intellectual circles and the discussions. So, yeah, you have a, a, a an important point. So. I mean, I think it's also important to say one more thing about like who Floresta was because she she was um, a school director. She had a school for girls, right, um, with a progressive curriculum. And I think this is important because she she was not the sort of um, lady who would just I don't know say at home writing, uh, right. no problem with that. But she she actually had a um, a, a, a sort of public position right she was a school director um and she had a project like a pedagogical project for women um that was completely like non-utilitarian so i think this also speaks a little bit about her positive views on education that you know maybe i'll talk about that later on but i can i can now answer i guess <laughs> um the question on floresta's distinctive contributions to philosophy like what she thought what yeah. were her ideas well i'm definitely interested in hearing more about her pedagogical program as well but yeah for now it would be great to hear about some of floresta's distinctive contributions to philosophy yeah cool so you know um i will contextualize her then again <laughs> um you know, there is this widespread idea nowadays that the Enlightenment, the European Enlightenment, was, and I quote, a conspiracy of bad white men and Whigs to provide the intellectual foundations for Western imperialism, end quote. This is really a quote. I mean, I'm, I'm <laughs> according to Barbara Taylor's article on Wollstonecraft, it was Eric Hobsbawm who formulated it like that. So the British wow. Enlightenment, for example, that took place during the long 18th century, occurred while Britain was a world-dominant colonial power being very prosperous due to their mm-hmm. role on the slave trade. And in land, at home, in their own country, women were considered property of their fathers and husbands and did not have power to own estates. So on the one hand, the Enlightenment brought forward ideals grounded on a certain optimism toward the powers mm-hmm. of reason and our ability to know, and ideals that were politically uh, powerful, such as equality, freedom, as universal values. But on the other hand, those ideas were not put into practice by the fellow white men who conceived them 
as we would expect that they would, given their like pretended universality. So this history of the Enlightenment, mm-hmm. as we are canonically told, does make the Enlightenment a sort of sectarian movement of a few to a few. But this is not the whole story. I mean, because there were these other ones who pushed these ideas to test and militated in favor of their radical implementation. And kind of in order to see this larger and more complex picture of the other face of the Enlightenment, um, we need to look at what those who are not the white powerful men were thinking. That is, Mm -hmm. we should look at what women were doing and claiming, and most importantly, what women from the colonies were doing and thinking about reason and equality in face of colonization. And I think that Floresa is one such figure because she is critical of the European Enlightenment, right? She, she, she says things like how European nations can call themselves civilized when they do slave trade and when they neglect women's rights. So she, she characterizes them as the real savages, as the brutes, mm-hmm. the colonizers, mm-hmm. not those who are the native inhabitants of the Americas. So she considers that colonization is an impediment to civilization Mm -hmm. and claims for a sort of transnational sense of equality. And when talking about indigenous people and and enslaved black people in Brazil, she says like, and I will quote, this is from the Opusculo Humanitario, uh, her her book from um, 1853. She says things like, God, who no race made to have over another revolting superiority, unlimited pleasure. So she kind of uses this kind of strong words to express a sense of equality that sees no racial boundaries and no national boundaries. And And it's interesting because on her work, she's able to articulate by description, right? The operating principles of colonialism, like showing how colonization plays a role in shaping the subjectivity of people, being part of like one sense of self, right? And she says that this operating principle of colonialism is it's suffering. Colonizers, they use others as, as instruments, you know, forcing them to act by causing them pain through like torture. Wow. And according to Floresta, Black enslaved people, indigenous people, and Brazilian women, they're all subject to domination, of course, on different levels. And this is where we should pay attention, right? But like she says that their marginal social status results from the fact that there are people who benefit from the lack of recognition of their dignities, like continuing to cause their mental and physical pain. So... Um, And she says, because those experiences of exploitation and naturalization of suffering become ingrained in the culture, she offers not only like a critique of colonial education, right, but also a proposal for an education that is able to sort of restore the dignity of these people. Um, And this is what the humanitarian means in the Opusculum Humanitario, (laughs) the, the title of the book. So she's looking for a way to humanize people and culture through education humanize in the sense of like connecting the mind with the body giving education to the mind and to the body um preventing people from receiving unnecessary suffering she's against physical punishment in education in the 19th century you know and and i think this is all because on her first book the translation she's got she was highly influenced by practical cartesianism like considering mm-hmm. that intelligence has no sex and that like 
um, all thinking be beings are able to like find freedom in acting with generosity. You know, this is very Cartesian. Yeah. She holds like generosity to be an intellectual virtue. So, so this is Floresta. She she um, tries to explain by description the 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 operating principles that that are present in colonial education and colonial culture and she um denounces that colonialism instrumentalizes the suffering of others as like a disciplinary strategy i think that this is powerful today yeah in incredibly so and it's so interesting to hear um that you know unlike other sort of cartesian feminists that I'm familiar with, like Mary Estelle is a big one, um, and also Poulain de la Barre. There are others. Floresta, it sounds like, took this line of thinking beyond just sort of the category of women, but was also looking at other social categories. And I think that that's really important. I mean, that seems like a very sort of, I'm not sure if this is the right use of the word, but like a modern turn. It's, at least it makes it something that's much more sort of relatable to the kind of social philosophy that's happening today where we don't want to just look at one category of identity, right? We're looking at how different categories of identity that one person can possess or sort of identify with all, all at once impact their experience, impact the opportunities that they have, and even impact their subjectivity, which it sounds like is an idea that Floresta also was having. But it sounds like we could almost think of her as somebody who is planting the seeds for this theory of intersectionality, maybe, that's so important for social philosophy today. Does that sound at all right, or am I misunderstanding the way that Floresta um, understands sort of different social identities and how they, they work together to um, impact someone's life? No, I think you are completely right. I think Floresta is very aware of... of, of um intersectional issues. Um, she knows that when she's talking about Brazilian women, she's not talking about every woman in Brazil, mm -hmm. right? Um, so she says things like, we should, we are treating here um, about the women to whom the men of civilization between us call Brazilian women. That is, mm -hmm. women that are not indigenous, that were born in freed families, or those that the goodwill of the, of the parents, of the fathers, rescue them on the baptismal sink from the, from the sad stamp of slavery. So I, I think that she's talking about different cases here. Um, she's talking about parents who are able to, through baptism, uh, rescue um, a black child from mm -hmm. slavery. And um, there were various laws um, that preceded uh, the complete, the end of slavery, the complete abolition of slavery. And one of them was the Lei do Ventre Livre, the, the law of, of, you know, the free birth, the freed at birth, sort of. So yeah. those who were born from enslaved mothers they they would be free after you know the promulgation of that law, so so there is this too. So um, I think she's this quotation um, is an indication that she's aware of various kinds of intersectional differences. That indigenous women are not in the same position as enslaved black women. That they're not in the same position as as women of her um, uh, background. Um, white women, um, heirs of Portuguese, um, you know, 
men who colonizers who once were colonizers it's also very interesting because like she um she's someone from a very privileged background and um charlotte matthews who is someone who wrote a, a book on floresta in english she says that she cannot overcome this position you know yeah. she she can pretend to um um, to be defending um, the rights of enslaved black people and indigenous people, mm-hmm. but she can never really um, understand what's going on in, in their lives. And like, she, she can never reach them really. Yeah. Um, but I, I think that this is a, a very, um, it, it's unjust with, with, with what she's proposing. I think that her critique of colonialism is very powerful because she says that you know the fact that there is a slavery is an impediment for education of of every citizen of the nation it's an impediment for for the, for the nation to become a civilized nation so so i think that this is a, a very powerful idea on on the 19th century of course at the same time there were black women like uh, maria firmina dos reis who wrote uh, the first romance by a black Brazilian women, who was in a position to, um, you know, denounce more fiercely and have um, um, a stronger uh, perspective um, on, on you know, the the, the problems of slavery um, in in Brazil. But I do think that the way that Foresta um, frames it um, as Slavery as 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 an impediment of civilization, um, uh, expropriation of indigenous lands as an impediment to civilization, um, and she she claims that this is a problem, right, for the universal concept of freedom and dignity and of civilization that is brought by the Enlightenment. So, in context, I think that she um, is giving a great contribution to this kind of tradition. Yeah, so one question that this raises for me relates to Floresta's relationship to colonialism, because I've heard these arguments that, you know, oh, we need to colonize so that we can spread education and Christianity among communities that are not educated properly or their own systems are not good enough. Do you think that this kind of argument is kind of like what Floresta is saying, in which case her arguments could be, I guess, maybe co-opted in support of colonial efforts. So this is this is another point where it, it, it's important to bring her 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 view of, of education. She she does not think that education is only what happens inside formal yeah. institutions of education. Mm. Education is not what happened in the what happens in the school or at the universities. Education is is what we acquire through culture too, mm-hmm. so it does not only occur in institutional spaces but also in culture. So, education restoring the dignity of the individuals means a culture that is able to um, recognize the dignity of individuals. Right. So, in yeah. this sense, she's she's an enlightenment thinker in the sense that mm-hmm. you know. She, she has this, there are those big concepts like equality and dignity, and they operate throughout the works as sort of um, guiding points, you know, guiding routes. So, you know, 
we, we need education. Education helps, but education beyond institutional spaces. Education means our habits, the way that we deal with one another. She's trying to raise awareness for um, children's rights <laughs> because you know there is a, there is an, an interesting uh, essay called Women, which is the only essay of Floresa that has been translated to English and published. It was published in London in the 19th century. And this essay, she's criticizing an European woman who does not take care of her kid because. You know, she she just goes to the rural areas and and leaves the kid, mm. you know, the 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 newborn with someone else to to take care of um, mm-hmm. the child, and she does not breastfeed. But she's not doing other stuff. I mean, she's not working. She's just you know, being futile and just you know enjoying uh, her position as you know as a as a as a rich woman, as a rich European woman. So she's not. She's not um, fulfilling her social social space appropriately. N- not even in, not not in the household, not in the public space, you know, and not raising the kid. So I think that what is at stake here. So she she in one sense, Foresta is writing about moral education of women in the tradition of Wollstonecraft and and others, right? So she's talking about. What are the, the 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 virtues that women should should have to actually properly feel um, their role as women? And one of the roles that Floresta considers to be important at that time is to be like a, a nurturing mother. Um, right. Not that you know, but again, today this sounds very strange because uh, compulsive motherhood is is something that. Um, we do not want to enforce, right? We want right. Um, women from the next generation and, and and ourselves to not feel obliged to to fulfill those social roles that are expected from them and from us. So, but again, in context, there 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 is um, there is an interesting um, point of view um, that is being um, defended by her of you know generosity and you know, recognition of the, the, the equality and the, the, like the, the, the right. humanity of the newborn as someone right. who needs to be taken care of and raised, you know? So, yeah. And again, it's like, you can see how on sort of a surface level, the view looks regressive, but there's another way of understanding the nuances of it is actually being in a sense, quite forward-looking or quite sort of progressive socially yes i i I think so i think that uh on her context this was uh, extremely progressive she was trying to um um you know she was helping this kind of nation building um uh, program this nation building agenda and um her her translation this um it was sort of adopted by so many women of her time and they started occupying the press and, you know, organizing themselves as writers and readers. And there was this community of women who are actually listening to um, her progressive ideas. So I think that um, it fills a, a very important role. And again, I think that it's also important, interesting, um, to, um, 
criticize Floresta in this way, in the sense of like showing the limits of her philosophy, because uh, otherwise it would be just, you know, creating a myth. And, yeah. and, and in philosophy, we don't, you know, it, it's not nice to have myths. We want to, we want to, we want to, we want to see the, the, the philosopher, the, the thinker um, in its context to actually see um, the limits of, of, the historical limits, the historical context, meaning the historical limits of of, of the thinker. Yeah, you know, I think so. that's such a good point, too, because sometimes you hear debates about, you know, was Mary Estelle really a feminist? Was Margaret Cavendish a feminist or not? And first of all, there's the question of, is it appropriate to apply this label of feminism to them when that seems kind of anachronistic? But not worrying about that question for the purposes of this conversation, I think that it's really important to acknowledge that, well, they don't have to have, you know, we can still recognize them as having been important philosophers and people who had important things to say or sort of interesting progressive things to say about women in their context without having to say they were feminist in every sense of the word. And in fact, it can be really helpful, I think, to welcome those nuances and welcome the critique or the criticism as you're suggesting because that also, and I want to pivot in a moment to talking about teaching Floresta um, in your own experience, I think it's really um, instructive and really important to show that we can be critical of thinkers without having to throw out their contributions or without having to erase <laughs> their contributions to history, right? So I just think that that's a really important point. And um, yeah, I just appreciate applying that again in the case of Floresta. Yeah, I think it's important to do that with the canonical male philosophers too, because Absolutely. most of the time sure. we just, we just gloss over. don't look at, exactly, mm -hmm. we gloss over and we don't look at the limitations of their own thoughts. Absolutely. So. so I want to quickly address Mary Wollstonecraft because I think you mentioned that Floresta's first book was a translation. Am I correct in thinking that that's a translation of Mary Wollstonecraft? So I think that, uh, so Floresta is sometimes called as the Brazilian Wollstonecraft. And I think that this comparison is very problematic. So one can think that it's a good marketing strategy for, for Floresta. So people get <laughs> interested in knowing who she is, but it's built on a lot of misunderstanding. And I think that we should not perpetuate this connection in order to like avoid overshadowing her, her uh, Floresta's real contributions. So the Floresta, mm -hmm. uh, the, the comparison comes from the fact that her translation, the Reikus, is attributed by the translator herself, Floresta, to Mistress Godwin, which was Wollstonecraft's married name. Mm -hmm. So it is written on the front page that Diretos is a translation from Wollstonecraft's work. And the secondary literature, readers and interpreters of Floresta, until today, sort of describe her as a translation of Wollstonecraft. Um, and, and the problem is that they attribute the ideas that were spread in this book in Brazil and Latin America to Wollstonecraft. And this is not the case. So Floresta mm -hmm. translated to Portuguese, a book by a guy named César Gardeton, uh, written in French, which in turn, so César Gardeton actually translated. He was a translator of this book that Floresta had in hand, and she translated from the French to Portuguese. So Gardeton's book was actually a translation to French from English. So Gardeton mm -hmm. himself 
misattributed his French translation to Wollstonecraft and Floresta just like passed the mistake along in her translation. That is so interesting. So it's not actually a translation of Wollstonecraft. No. So this (laughs) discovery was made by uh, Pagliari's book in 1995, like 150 years after the translation was published. So she figured out that the translation was a translation of this anonymous author, Sophia, of the radical pamphlet um, of Sophia, the radical feminist pamphlet in the context of the pamphlet Wars in Britain. So it's interesting because when scholars find out that the book was altered by an anonymous person and not by the great Wollstonecraft, it was sort of a cold water shower on their research. <laughs> and they sort of did not see interest in the revelation. And some got really mad and tried to maintain some connection between Flores and Wollstonecraft. So I, in particular, I mean, I found this relation amazingly interesting and fertile because, mm-hmm. I mean, between Sophia and Floresta, because... Um, you know, it shows that the Floresta's book is a translation of a radical feminist pamphlet from the pamphlet wars, you know, carrying the arguments from Poulon de la Barre and bringing to Latin America practical Cartesianism. So it kind of gives a, a very interesting new kind of route for yeah. Floresta's studies. It that almost explains be... the provenance of her ideas more. Exactly. Because yeah. actually that's that's the, the, the true... Uh, original book which she translated and it's interesting because Sophia the anonymous her pamphlets had been translated to various languages right and it's interesting because Giretos is part of this reception of Sophia right and it, she can the fact that she's located in this in this context um, of a translation of the Sophia pamphlets is, is, it's very important, not only for understanding Floresta, but also the origins of Brazilian and Latin American feminism. So I think that, like, in one way, it's, it, it is a misunderstanding to think that the book is a translation of Wollstonecraft, and this is noxious to Floresta's studies, right? Um, it's, we cannot read uh, Floresta's production in light of 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 Wollstonecraft, we should read it in light of what it is, right? Mm-hmm. As as you know, a development uh, built on the the Sophia pamphlets. That's it. Wow, so we that is so interesting. I was definitely guilty of that, just from the cursory sort of research that I've done. Um, so thank you for clearing that up. I'm ha- so happy to know. Okay. So, just because we only have a couple minutes left. Um, I just want to skip ahead and ask, have you ever assigned Floresta in class? And if so, what did you assign? Yeah, so this past week, I just finished my first undergraduate course in Floresta. It was a philosophy of education for course. I assigned Opusculo Humanitario, the humanistic pamphlet of her on authorship. And I'm on the fifth week of my first graduate level course in Floresta. So on this one, I assigned both the translation, the directors and her own. So we kind of compare um, how mm. the books are connected or not. And I think it's interesting to see how students feel as if their history has been stolen from them, right? Mm. And they don't only get excited, they get angry that no one showed those facts in this history of like modern philosophy, of education, of Brazil and of the European Enlightenment through these lenses before. Right. So this wow. have this kind of experience of amazement and wonder and they kind of 
started doubt the history that they had been told and consider their knowledge like completely outdated. And I think that this is amazing. <laughs> totally. That's how so it's so powerful. powerful. Yes, absolutely. Oh, that's so interesting. So that makes me wonder. So you said that there's one essay by Floresta that's been translated into English, but maybe there are some listeners of the podcast who could read the original Portuguese, right? That's the language that yes. she was writing in. So um, beyond that one essay that's been translated into English, where would you suggest anyone who's interested in learning more about Floresta should go from here? Like, is there a good text of hers that is a is a really good sort of introductory text for people to read? So, um, you know, her works have not been translated to English yet, but she wrote in, in French and Italian as well. So maybe those who uh, can read French um, sure. <laughs> will have... Um, a uh, good way to go. Um, I think that um, in Portuguese, her major works are the Opusculo Humanitario, the Lagrima de um on indigenous people. It's an indigenous poem. And Páginas de uma Vida Obscura, which is um, um, a book, a little book, where she um, is kind of inspired by Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's oh, yes. Cabin. Um, so I think that to get close to Nizia, um, you should read Poulain de la Barre and the Sofia pamphlets because Diretus is a translation of the Sofia pamphlets. So you have the original, right? There is also the um, Charlotte Matthews book named Gender, Race and Patriotism in the Works of Floresta and Booting and Matthews' amazing paper overthrowing the Floresta Wilson craft myth for Latin American feminism. So, you know, um, there's an introductory chapter that I wrote with Zeko, but it's not there yet. I know I don't know okay. when it will be out. So keep and an eye out for that. Yeah. Yes, for that Definitely. and for my Cambridge elements on Foresta that will be out in 2022, hopefully. Oh, amazing. So exciting. Um, <laughs> so shifting gears a little bit from talking about Floresta to just more generally your um, pedagogical sort of perspectives. What is one text that you think every philosophy student should read? This is such a tricky question. And it I know, I'm so sorry. It's kind of a mean about. question. <laughs> it is. But, you know, the, the it's hard because you have to assume that every philosophy student you're talking about, like, knows and values philosophy's history, which is not necessarily the case. That's a good point. So, you know, no problem. Even if the person is not interested in the history of philosophy, I think that a true masterpiece that is constantly constantly neglected by philosophers is Ovid's Metamorphosis. So I recommend reading the Metamorphosis because it's one of those books that once you study, it guides us not only through the complexities of human imagination, desire, and history, but it also sort of unfolds narrative tropes that have been present in the history of Western thought. You know, it has more than 250 myths describing the origins of things and had been adopted, adapted into many art forms, movies and paintings. So I think that um, these myths are so ingrained in our culture that we can kind of use the book to read our contemporary yes. world. So oh, that's so I interesting. Of it, and also because once you think in terms of reception, it will lead you to modern philosophy. Because yeah. Spinoza cited Ovid in the Ethics, and and Conway used some Ovidian tropes on the principles. I was going like to say, how can, right? Mm -hmm. How far 
can one thing transform into another? Absolutely. Right. Definitely. Yes. I love that answer. Thank you so much. So we are at the end of our time. Um, Nastasia, thank you so much. This has been so interesting and I've learned so much. It's been a delight. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to New Voices in Philosophy. Production of the podcast is funded by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada as part of the Extending New Narratives in the History of Philosophy project. The music you hear is 17th century female composer Elizabeth Claude Jaquette de la Guerre's Sonata No. 2 in D major, performed on the violin by Bizzaria Armanici. For more information about the project and for future episodes, please visit our website, newnarrativesinphilosophy.net. We look forward to discussing all these new figures and ideas with you.